0: Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm Sam Tracy. Today we take you to the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations in Rockland for a talk by Ambassador Ronald Lehman. The title of today's talk is Technology and the End of the Cold War. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time and it will be archived on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to hear the program again at your convenience and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. The program will also be available as a podcast. Introducing today's talk is the president of the Mid-Coast Forum on Foreign Relations, George Look.
1: We're pleased to have Ambassador Ronald Lehman with us today to speak on and it's a very intriguing topic. Technology and the end of the Cold War and the end of the end of the Cold War. The Honorable Ronald F. Lehman II is the counselor to the director of the Florence Livermore National Laboratory. For many years, he served there as the director of the Center for Global Security Research. Ambassador Lehman has been the director of the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency, the Assistant Secretary for International Security Policy in the Department of Defense, Ambassador and Chief Negotiator on Strategic Offensive Arms for the START 1 Treaty, and Deputy Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs. He has served on the National Security Council staff as a Senior Director, in the Pentagon as a Deputy Assistant Secretary, and on the Senior Professional Staff of the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee. He served in Vietnam Vietnam as a commissioned officer of the United States Army. In the past, Ambassador Lehman has chaired and served on numerous boards on a range of national security issues, some advising the president and others at the Department of Defense, the State Department, NATO, and the U.S. Institute of Peace. He has served as a U.S. representative to a number of United Nations disarmament and review conferences. Ambassador Lehman has also co-chaired studies for the National Academy of Sciences, the US Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the Department of and the Department of Energy. He was a member of several Defense Science Board task forces, served on several National Research Council committees, and was on the advisory panel for the US Strategic Command. Ambassador Lehman is a member of the Council of Foreign Relations was a public affairs fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, and an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. He received his PhD from Claremont Graduate University and his bachelor's degree from Claremont McKenna College. Ron, welcome to the Midcoast Forum.
2: Uh, Thank you, George. When George and Karen invited me, To join with you today, I jumped at the chance. Uh, First of all, we get to kick around um, thoughts on many of the challenges we face today, and I get to do it with a new, more diverse audience, most of whom I don't know. On the other hand, I also get to see uh, some dear friends and uh, to revisit my old stomping grounds. Uh, I was born in California's Napa Valley, but I actually graduated from high school about hundred miles south of here. Uh, so New England is uh, in my blood. I was asked to comment on how technology shaped international security at the end of the Cold War. And of course that invites the question of how technological change impacts us now as we contemplate a possible new Cold War and even hot wars on a scale not seen since World War II. And because of my background, I was asked also to say something about the future of arms control under these circumstances. These are all massive and complex subjects. For my part, I just want to prime the pump for our discussions with a few thoughts and examples. My remarks will range widely, but I am going to use the role of information and information science and technology as an organizing theme. Our hosts have made available some of my writings that relate to today's topic, so that makes it easier for me to be brief. Of course, I speak only for myself and not for any organization with which I am or have been associated. For those of you who need to leave early or get tired of what I'm saying, let me give you my bottom line up front. The same information scientists that encouraged the openness and transparency that helped end the Cold War and bring about so, uh, so, many, valu- so many valuable arms control agreements are the same technologies that, in this era of disinformation and deep fakes, are moving us to a new Cold War and compromising the future of arms control. Nevertheless, I think we can learn from information science how we might successfully address these challenges again. To borrow from the old patriotic slogan, we did it before and we can do it again. Certainly I do believe we can benefit in these times from re-examining the many lessons we learned at the end of the Cold War. That period did include the golden age of arms control that depended heavily on acquiring and sharing information. Nevertheless, we really do face steep learning curves about what is different in today's troubled world. Political, military, social, and technological change are rampant today, creating a world in which perhaps the major consideration about information is our uncertainty about it. And it is important to realize how rapidly speculation and innovation in all the sciences is becoming applied technology. At Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, where I work, I've been privileged to watch many ideas transition from science fiction to science fact, thanks to the information sciences. So for example, the original Human Genome Project enabled us to map the information stored biologically in our DNA. This opened the door to thousands of biotech and medical applications, such as revolutionary disease detection methods gene therapies, vaccines, and synthetic biology. At the lab and elsewhere, the world's fastest supercomputers continue to leapfrog each other and are now reaching exascale, a billion, billion operations a second. This drives vast numbers of multidisciplinary advances, such as artificial intelligence uh, and digital twins, including at our lab the first virtual model of the human heart, a digital tool that can actually provide visualization of the chemical processes in the heart tissue itself. Such high-performance computers, along with nanotechnology and advanced manufacturing, are also creating a revolution in the substance and structure of valuable new materials. Production of many existing materials is becoming cheaper and easier everywhere. In fact, even a few new basic chemical elements have been added to the periodic table, such as the one that we're so proud of, number 116, Livermorium, (laughs) demonstrating how theoretical science and applied science can be more tightly integrated through modeling and simulations. You've probably read about how nuclear fusion ignition has been achieved in our laboratory several times now by producing miniature versions of the sun, in part with the help of machine learning, thus building momentum for cleaner, safer, and more sustainable sources of energy. And there are many more advances at our laboratory, at other American labs, and at labs around the world. Indeed, there is more science to be done than there are scientists in the world to do it. And information science and technology are the almost universal accelerators of this advancement. Humanity stands to benefit greatly as more talent and resources explore and exploit these opportunities. My own career, and that of George and Karen as well, has focused mainly on mitigating the downsides of technology by keeping our defenses strong while encouraging international restraint, including arms control, nonproliferation, cooperative threat reduction, and responsible science, often involving what we call dual-use technology. And there, the dark side of science, like the bright side of science, also frequently follows science fiction. The iconic science fiction image of dual-use technology is in Sir Arthur C. Clarke's 2001, A Space Odyssey. You may recall the famous opening scene in the 1968 Stanley Kubrick film version in which a proto-human discovers that a primitive club used as a tool can become a deadly weapon and victoriously throws it up, throws his weapon up into the air where it spins, and then the motion picture scene transitions forward several million years to a similar-shaped futuristic spaceship spinning across our solar system. This classic scene and even its soundtrack are copied in the opening of the new movie Barbie. <laughs> leaving us with the image of a toy doll spinning in space. That had doll has been used by a little girl as a club to destroy other dolls that were not Barbie dolls. How many of you would have thought that a Barbie doll would be an example of a dual use technology? <laughs> And today, nearly everybody who worries about the risks of artificial intelligence remembers the most important character in Arthur C. Clarke's 2001, Hal. Hal is the all-too-human Hal 9000 computer who murders innocent sleeping crew members in order to complete the mission assigned to the spacecraft. Of course, in the sequel, 2010, the year we make contact, Hal's artificial intelligence actions are explained and Hal sacrifices himself to save human lives. I could choose any one of many great historians, social scientists, technologists and artists to articulate the benefits and dangers and the use and abuse of technology and especially information technology. But today I plan to stick with science fiction and with Arthur C. Clarke. Of course, I I will have to disclose to you that I do have a conflict of interest in this choice. After meeting with Sir Arthur in Sri Lanka in 2002, he agreed to my request that he participate in the 50th anniversary of our laboratory. He also gave me an autographed copy of one of his books, The Light of Other Days, a fascinating send-up of the high-tech entrepreneurial Silicon Valley culture where I live. In the light of other days, a startup company gets fabulously wealthy commercializing, on the scale of the iPhone, a wormhole camera. Exploiting the curvature of space-time, a wormhole camera permits everyone to go back in time, anywhere, and see what actually happened then and there. In short, the wormhole camera brings about an end to all secrecy and all privacy. The wormhole camera becomes the primary resource for historians, journalists, spies, tax collectors, busybodies, and voyeurs. Of course, these days, every time a closed-circuit TV tape or an ATM camera recording is played backwards to see who committed a crime, or a military staring sensor looks back to see if terrorists have planted an improvised explosive device or are are preparing an ambush, We use ubiquitous existing technology to look back in time to attempt to ascertain the truth about what led to the present. We apply this even to arms control verification. So let's look at the past, but without a wormhole camera. Uh, Many technologies played a key role over the years during the Cold War, at its end, and especially now with the ending of the end of the Cold War. To tie things together, let me begin by following one more thread associated with Arthur C. Clarke. In 1945, Clarke wrote a paper that bridged science fiction and real science. Clarke suggested that when rockets were powerful enough, artificial communications satellites could be launched into geostationary orbit. All of this became science fact long ago. The first satellite in any orbit, of course, was the Soviet Sputnik 1. It wasn't much of a communications satellite, simply broadcasting a beep to remind everyone it was there. And contrary to popular myth, it wasn't a surprise. Sputnik 1 was a mirror technology demonstration planned during international geophysical year. Uh, 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 Moscow, like the United States, had announced months before that it planned to launch a satellite. Initially, the Kremlin didn't even think it was a big deal, and Western scientists and leaders publicly welcomed the successful launch. Indeed, President Eisenhower already anticipates that satellites could be used for surveillance, to monitor military activity, uh, to prevent surprise attack, uh, and to provide what we call national technical means of verification for arms control. More urgently, surveillance satellites would permit the United States to stop the potentially dangerous high-altitude U-2 aircraft flights over Soviet territory. Sadly, the necessary satellites came too late for Francis Gary Powers, whose U-2 was shot down in 1960, in the middle of the Berlin crisis and in the middle of an American election. Sputnik was not a surprise, but what was a surprise was the way in which the world reacted to Sputnik. Another new technology, popular television, vividly showcased small U.S. rockets with very small satellites blowing up on their launch pads. This compared very poorly with the television images of the far more massive and successful Soviet space launch vehicles placing satellites, animals, and then humans into orbit. For many people around the world, particularly in newly independent countries of what is now often called the global south, Sputnik signaled the superiority of the Soviet economic, political, and innovation systems. To amplify this reaction, Moscow turned on and refined one of the largest and most sophisticated international influence campaigns ever seen. The authenticity of the continuous Soviet space accomplishments was clear, but it also gave credibility to the misinformation and disinformation that was often mixed in. To many Americans, the recognition that Soviet rockets capable of launching large satellites might launch nuclear warheads to intercontinental range was frightening. This fear in turn made US allies nervous that they would be decoupled from American security guarantees even as the Soviet Union felt more emboldened to challenge the United States globally. One can see fuel for the Berlin crisis of 1958 through 1967 and the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 in that first Sputnik launch in 1957. This dangerous period saw the largest nuclear weapons buildup in history. Driven by the Sputnik crisis, the US Navy decided immediately to pursue a crash program to put ballistic missiles on submarines. This was the famous Polaris program. In that compressed time frame, our lab designed the much smaller warhead that was necessary for Polaris. Similarly, the smaller American missiles required finding smaller, lighter weight, more efficient electronics and other components. The Defense Department was forced to stress precision precision and quality over-bulk force. Not only did Sputnik inspire the largest superpower arms race and the missile gap crisis in the 1960 US election, but it also inspired the space race. Not until Neil Armstrong landed on the moon did the superiority of American space technology and its associated information technology become clear to the world. And it was that American technological superiority sparked by the earlier global humiliation of the United States caused by Sputnik that had helped pave the way way for the demise of the Soviet Union. How can I justify that statement? There are many reasons. Certainly the United States again and again showed that it could exploit advanced microelectronic and information technology to reestablish a stable balance each time Soviet military threats increased. Uh, American technological superiority also seems to have forced the Soviet Union to spend more money on its military than its economy could afford. In what Mikhail Gorbachev called the age of stagnation, the Soviet economy turned out to be more inefficient, more backward, and more corrupt than even the harshest Western critics understood. Perhaps a more important development, however, was how the technology driven by the American science and technology response to Sputnik changed the economies of the United States and the West, and ultimately our societies. Here I'm speaking again, mainly about the digital revolution in information technology, which in turn, it enabled many other technologies. American productivity outpaced the Soviet Union far more than we realized at the time. The difference in living standards became obvious even to people isolated in remote areas of Russia, and I could add China. Moreover, the highly competitive revolution in computations, communications, and other information technology seemed to accelerate more quickly in free markets and open societies, and also to open up those societies even more. All of these technological developments seemed to undermine the top-down, single political party-managed Soviet police state. Information technology also helped advance the openness and transparency that would be essential for the golden age of arms control at the end of the Cold War. All of this led around the world to what was called the Washington Consensus, which was originally an economic concept, valuing free markets, free trade, sound currency, trustworthy contracts, honest accounting, the privatization of state industries, and so on. Quickly, the idea of the Washington Consensus broadened, however, to include rule of law, democracy, free speech, free press, free travel, other human rights, and above all, no altering of recognized international boundaries by force. Unfortunately, as I'm sure you've already noted, the very information technologies that helped open up authoritarian regimes at the end of the Cold War and helped verify agreements are among the same technologies that are na- that now are used by authoritarian regimes to suppress their own peoples, steal their country's assets, vandalize international norms, and wage war on others. Whether information technology and information operations will ultimately help or hinder international arms restraint, such as arms control, is an open question. This recounting of the Cold War, its end, and apparent return of something similar to the Cold War, focuses on a few threads of technology, a sort of six degrees of separation analysis linked all the way back to Sputnik. Undoubtedly this narrow narrative thread is inadequate, given how very broad and interrelated the full fabric of the story is. So before I return to the narrow thread of information technology and focus on the arms control context, let us briefly review the broader interwoven fabric. Here I find it useful to use the mnemonic device of the D words, ideas like deterrence, defense, disarmament, diplomacy, detente, democracy, development, disintermediation, and others, even defenestration, that is, throwing opponents out of windows, which seems to be back in vogue in some parts of the world. It is important to consider all of these key factors and to remember that technology interacts with each and every one of them, and they interact with technology as well. Indeed, the value of our technological or arms control accomplishments is usually measured against the broader requirements associated with the D words. At this stage in my remarks, you've prob- probably have been surprised that I've not spent most of my time talking about all of the arms control achievements at the end of the Cold War, and especially how we dealt with weapons of mass destruction. Each is a great story. The list is long. We can be very proud of what we achieved. Most arms control histories focus on the bold nuclear weapons treaties. I was privileged to have been a part of those negotiations. Certainly the treaty on intermediate range nuclear forces and the two START treaties on strategic offensive arms were historic. I have argued that an essential step in bringing about an end of the Cold War was the successful deployment of the NATO missiles. Uh, in 1983, which forced the Soviet Union to negotiate seriously. And I've argued that the resulting INF Treaty, with its emphasis on transparency and its highly intrusive inspection regime, was a major catalyst for the end of the Cold War, precisely because it required and facilitated information sharing and the opening up of the closed Soviet system. The conditions necessary for these achievements, however, were greatly improved by the more comprehensive set of arms control agreements. Because the nuclear balance is linked to the conventional military balance, the treaty on conventional forces in Europe reached in 1990 was essential. But to have confidence in that agreement, a whole series of confidence and security building agreements proved necessary. Even basic building uh, steps, however, proved challenging to negotiate during the Cold War confrontations. For example, Moscow agreed to the technical upgrade of the hotline but refused to discuss how it could be used for risk reduction because the Kremlin did not want to reduce fear and tensions in the West during the massive nuclear saber-rattling propaganda campaign they had launched against NATO. After the INF missiles were deployed, that all changed. One can see this dynamic clearly in the Stockholm negotiations of the early 1980s. In Stockholm, we sought more transparency in conventional military exercises and operations. The Western group of nations went into these talks with a certain nervousness. Expectations were that, as in previous talks, the NATO democracies would be divided, the neutral and non-aligned would be of little help to the West, and the Eastern Bloc would be rock solid behind the Soviet Union. All three of these expectations proved to be wrong. Precisely because of their commitment to deploy the INF missiles in response to the Soviet SS-20 intermediate range ballistic missiles, the NATO countries hung tightly together. Moscow, with its large standing armies, sought to limit mobilization of reserves, which is so important to the NATO democracies. Because mobilization was vital also to the neutrals, however, they stood with the West rather than act as kibitzers. And having watched how Moscow used military exercises to threaten the pro-democracy solidarity movement in Poland, most Warsaw Pact governments became supportive of Western transparency proposals, such as allowing observers from other groups of nations at large military exercises and sharing information. Indeed, one of the greatest contributions of arms control to the end of the Cold War was the promotion of transparency through intrusive engagement and inspection measures, such as those associated with the Vienna Document on Confidence and Security Building Measures, the Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe, the Open Skies Treaty, the Chemical Weapons Convention, the International Science and Technology Center, and the Joint Verification Experiment or what we refer to as the JVE. The JVE illustrates the importance of obtaining information you need to develop trust with the other side. The AJVE involved on-site inspection at nuclear test sites to include use of technology for direct measurement of the explosive yield of underground nuclear tests. The successful demonstration of such technology led the United States Senate to take up the Threshold Test Ban Treaty that opponents had blocked for 15 years. After the addition of a new verification protocol that probably made the TTBT the most precisely verifiable treaty ever concluded, the Senate gave its consent to the ratification of the treaty by a vote of 98 to 0. When is the last time you saw Congress settle any heated dispute unanimously? Being able to have agreement on what are true facts helps greatly. Of course, at the same time we were concluding these agreements, the entire geopolitical environment at the end of the Cold War was evolving rapidly to be more conducive to openness and cooperation. Both Russia and China wanted to benefit from being closely integrated into the Western economy. They wanted to escape the heaviest burdens of military spending. Their citizens were enjoying greater freedom to speak, to travel, to criticize. Desiring to be seen as normal nations, Moscow and Beijing sought respectability, often endorsing Western values, international standards, best practices, and modern regulatory rules. Foreign investment was encouraged, and many of their own citizens, empowered by the advance and spread of information technology, became highly successful multicontinental entrepreneurs promoting the Washington Consensus on democracy and free trade. Their citizens increasingly felt unconstrained in sending their children to Western universities. And having made it into the World Trade Organization, numerous Russians expressed hope that their country would one day be a member of the European Union and NATO. And the information, uh, the technologies that created the World Wide Web encouraged all of these trends just as they aided in the transparent and intrusive verification of arms control agreements. And these arms control agreements also reinforced confidence that the dispute resolution processes they established would encourage even greater political and economic cooperation, particularly in Europe. Unfortunately, not much of any of this is true today. Indeed, every positive trend was accompanied from the beginning by resistance and backlash from a number of political and security cultures in the Russian and Chinese societies. At first, examples of blowback seemed to be exceptions to the trend. Over time, the negative became its own trend and eventually surpassed surpassed, uh, nearly all that we had achieved in the positive trends. We can debate when exactly the Cold War ended and when something like the Cold War can be said to have returned. Clearly, a major measure of what was won and what was lost is to be found in how enthusiasm for openness, transparency, candor, and rules-based order morphed into the closing of many societies, the suppression of information, the promulgation of big lies, and the vandalizing of norms, including the violation of international law and arms control agreements. Any strategy for responding to these adverse developments will be judged from the perspective of the D words I mentioned earlier, democracy, defense, diplomacy, deterrence, disarmament, the like. I am convinced, however, that any successful strategy must exploit information technology more than ever before, and yet find a way to mitigate its abuse. Information technology is, is every bit as dual use as any other technology including weapons of mass destruction, and information technology is far more ubiquitous in its applications. So despite the fabric of issues we face, let me continue again down the narrow thread that we began to follow with the help of Arthur C. Clarke's science fiction, namely the impact of information science and technology and information operations. To encourage questions and commentary during our discussions today, let me offer seven things that I think are needed to deal with the challenges of the new Cold War and the future of arms control, given the use and abuse of information. First, we must acknowledge and better understand from a total systems perspective what I call the Manichean problem, the dilemma of darkness and light in which the same technologies that give us the potential for almost total situational awareness, understanding, and connectivity can also deny us information and understanding and the ability to communicate. Worse, it can leave us with misinformation and disinformation to guide our decisions and restrict those with whom we consult. Second, we need a broader discipline that one might call applied epistemology. That is, in our practical decision-making, how can we confidently demonstrate that we know something to be sufficiently real, valid, or true to avoid making big mistakes? In the age of so-called deep fakes, this will not be easy. Third, all of us must rely mostly on knowledge generated by others to live our lives. But how can we judge whether our sources are competent authorities when not even the greatest expert gets it all correct? And not all experts are always honest. For that matter, how can we trust computers especially in those cases in which we are not able to completely understand how such a black box gets its answer. Fourth is the problem created by orthogonal behavior, when randomness or ignorance or irrationality or contrarian strategies don't follow the accepted rules, even when the factual basis for those rules is well understood. We worry that terrorists might be undeterrable if they truly value death over life. We worry that authoritarian regimes want us to know they are violating laws and norms precisely because the violation of norms intimidates us. We saw what happened when dictators used chemical weapons to assassinate domestic opponents in other people's countries. Laws, contracts, and agreements, as well as best practices, rules of the road, and codes of conduct, provide guide rails for those who benefit from the guide rails. But those who believe they do not can easily violate norms faster than we can create them or simply lie about the facts. Fifth, we must deal with the problem of latency, that is, the lead time we have to act, For example, in non-proliferation and other international security fields, I and others have focused on strategic latency, which involves potential proliferators deliberately completing most but not all of the steps toward a prohibited weapon, being ever closer to crossing the threshold when desired. Exploiting such a frog in the pot strategy to avoid being stopped exploits the common desire to buy time to find solutions. We have long recognized that hiding the de- development of nuclear weapons is not easy, uh, it's, uh, uh, but it's e- it is not as easy as for chemical weapons, for example, which is not as easy as for biological weapons, which may not be as easy as for cyber and information weapons. As knowledge and technology of such information weapons programs advance and spread, the cost of entry and the footprints and signatures of the necessary activities shrink, and this is true even of weapons of mass destruction. Our lead times can become very short, and signals that we need to act may not be visible. Widespread information warfare, internet attacks, identity theft, and ransomware attacks by outlaw states, criminal organizations, and individuals illustrate the problem of latent dangers. Sixth, we need to recognize that everything we do requires the trade-off of some values against others, and that risks need to be carefully understood in order to set priorities. Very sophisticated information-based risk assessment methodologies exist to deal with airline safety and energy production, but these tools have not been applied very effectively in dealing with many of the key issues of national security and arms control. Seventh, challenges like the first six I've mentioned tend to put a premium on looking toward the emergence of future problems or alternatively toward times when existing problems may be ripe for solution. All of that is good, but the real problem is that the game is afoot now. Let me use the example of the Golden age of arms control. Although the historic agreements were ultimately concluded in more cooperative times, The agreements were fundamentally shaped during times of competition and actual confrontation. If we don't put in play timely strategies now that promote our interests, we can be sure that others will put forward approaches that don't serve our interests. Finally, let me conclude with the optimization that may provide some hope. Information theory, information science, and information technology continuously have to deal with their own examples of the seven problems I've mentioned. For example, to build and operate an exascale supercomputer at a billion-billion operations a second reliably, and then to know the answer is correct, has resulted in much knowledge and know-how to validate data, messages, and calculations, and reduce risks. Quantum computing will be even more demanding in this regard. Maybe there is something we can learn from information science itself that will help us shore up the wobbly international security architecture and arms control regimes that seem so vulnerable to the dark sides and downsides of information operations. Information science could prove vital to the end of the end of the end of the Cold War. (laughs) I know this has been a somewhat unorthodox presentation, but I hope it's been useful to you. And I would welcome comments, questions. Uh, I want to learn from you.
1: Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Ron. I think you've given us a lot to think about. Uh, A lot of information there in a short period of time. Uh, We collect uh, questions uh, in writing from our our, uh, members and guests. and, And I usually take the opportunity to ask the first question myself the advantage of being the moderator. You talked about uh, you know, the, in the Cold War and uh, being leaders in technology and a lot of times we were but we didn't have that perspective. For modern technologies, the um, you know, cyber and, and all of that, are we leaders or followers at this point? You know, are we able to keep up in today's world with so many other countries that are, uh, have modernized and become more technically savvy?
2: Uh, let me give you the, the, the good news and then the bad news. Uh, the good news is that by and large, uh, in the West and particularly in the United States, we still tend to be the great innovative leader, not only in, in science and technology, but actually in getting things to consumers, getting things out there that, that work, applying it. The bad news is that um, it used to be said that all the Chinese were doing in biology was copycat. You know, it was all derivative. Their people were in our universities, so they were using our footnotes. It's not true today. Uh, a sizable amount of the cutting edge uh, in, in biotechnology is being done in China. Uh, and uh, you have to remember, they have more scientists than we do. Um, the um, The other bad news is that Um, many of the guide rails that um, are uh, in the west that actually can constrain some science but nevertheless give more people more confidence to go ahead and do some things those guide rails don't exist in many of or they're very weak in many of the authoritarian countries and so in a lot of areas like in bioethics where people are concerned about cloning of humans and things of that nature, uh, you've seen the controversy in the press over experiments that took place in China that would uh, were not ready, shall we say, uh, for prime time and certainly would not have been accepted by the scientific community in the United States. So the good news is we're still a leader. The bad news is that we're not all that far ahead, and sometimes it's easier to catch up.
1: Let's follow a little uh, follow-up on that that someone submitted. Given the steady erosion of STEM skills in our public education system, uh, do we still have sufficient upcoming resources to, to stay ahead?
2: Well, um, we... Uh, I can uh, speak from what I've seen myself in our laboratory and others, which is, in some areas, uh, We are doing very well at generating people who have the science, technology, engineering, and mathematical skills that we need. But we still have to hire a large number of people who are foreign citizens or are immigrants who are now US citizens uh, in order to get the best and the brightest. Um, And the bigger problem is that while there are segments of society that have become very sophisticated in these areas, a large part of society, including in the expert community, is not particularly literate in these areas. So we got a long way to go. I mean, the growth potential is tremendous, but if, if we're just average, uh, a lot of countries out there are going to be above average.
1: We a number of people who are worried about the uh, implications of new technologies, in, particu- in particular artificial intelligence, uh, and what effect that's going to have. Uh, one, of the, one, one person asked the last man to walk on the moon, uh, Gene who, uh, Cernan?
2: Uh, pardon, Gene heard, Cernan?
1: Saying Gene Cernan, of course. Once said nobody has ever had a ticker take parade for a machine. How important is it for man to continue to be the major player in things like space and space exploration, and continue to do other tasks that machines, AI, uh, is in danger of replacing uh, humans with?
2: Yes. Well, uh, that's the great philosophical issue. Um, If you, you know, everybody likes to say, follow the science. So let's follow the latest astrophysics we're doomed. The, and there are so many things that will over the next million or trillion years destroy the earth, it's hard to imagine that we will be here then. So why do we even meet here in Maine and talk about all of this? It's all gonna end. <laughs> now, uh, I, 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 I tend to be more like Charlie Brown who said the the, the world won't end today because it's already tomorrow in Australia. Um, <laughs> but however you think about it the the reality is that bad things are going to happen but we seem to want to live and that drives our actions
1: at least for the next million years <laughs> so is there... Back to uh, kind of the general... By the way, the
2: science could be wrong. But it (laughs) it may take us several million or billion years to know.
1: Let me return back to the uh, uh, question of the relationships between the U.S. and the major powers of the world. Someone asked, is there any expectation that we'll have increased transparency with Russia or China? Or how long is it going to take?
2: Uh, Well the 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 answer is I think is inevitable that in some ways we will have more access to information and more knowledge maybe even we'll get wormhole cameras who knows but um, the bigger problem is that in the near term uh, the the regimes see um, the value of controlling information tightly as essential to their staying in power. And uh, sadly, uh, in, in both Russia and China, uh, you have a kind of, of uh, organized crime kleptocratic uh, element that um, uh, tends to have great influence and, and support uh, other authoritarian ideologies because they, they they think that's how they survive. My own view is that that makes them fragile. I think in the long run we're in better position. I think our open societies, the freedom to debate issues, that we will do better. But obviously while we spend a lot of time debating, sometimes we don't act very decisively, so it's not as decisive as it, it, it could be. Uh, China has got tremendous demographic problems. And remember, by joining in the idea of the Washington Consensus for as long as they did, and I met with Deng Xiaoping in the Great Hall of the People in January of 1979, a month after normalization of relations, and he, he explained how he was going to transform China by bringing in market mechanisms And the sinologists all said this is crazy, because their experience was Mao's China. He did it. He created, really, we created, the largest middle class in the world in China. And they don't want to go back. And you already see, you see it in some of the COVID debate in China, you see it in other things, that there's pushback. So while Xi's ideological roots and sympathies kind of lean back towards Mao's China, There are a lot of people who grew up in the age of Deng Xiaoping uh, who basically don't want to go back. So, watch this space, we'll see what happens.
1: If we have to watch the space and we can't have the transparency and cooperation now, should we be worrying about a Dr. Strangelove nuclear launch?
2: Well, uh, we, we worry about it so much that I, I think we actually are quite competent in uh, uh, trying to prevent that. Um, you can never rule out anything, but, you know, absolute suicide, maybe. There are people who could have that kind of access, but I don't think so. I think both we and the Russians, and I think the Chinese as well, Uh, have tight controls. We worry a little bit about others, and of course, uh, what happens if you get what used to be called loose nukes, things like that, out there. And that's one reason why the trend today towards uh, greater proliferation is worrisome. Uh, As the international security and stability break up, that we achieved at the end of the Cold War, More and more countries are looking to whether or not they need to acquire nuclear weapons in order to provide for their own security. And while many of those are countries we see as as generally bad actors, like Iran and and North Korea, some of the important ones are close allies. Uh, A number of countries, Japan and, and Korea, South Korea have extensive nuclear technology they could become nuclear powers quickly and easily if they if they chose to do so but what's also worrying is how many other countries many of whom are very friendly to the United States um, are starting to say I've got to have nuclear technology because I may need to get nuclear weapons they haven't made the decision to get them but they're keeping their options open that's the kind of latent strategic latency strategy I spoke about
1: I think we've always been um, under the impression that nuclear armed powers would uh, have rational actors as their leaders. Uh, I'm not sure that's necessarily true today. Look at Putin and all the, the uh, threats that he's making to use nuclear weapons. Um, can we, you know, what's the role? You, you talk about third world countries or other countries getting weapons. How about yeah. the ones who have them already? Do you think there's even more danger now than there was in the past?
2: Well, I think there's more danger now simply because we've got wars going on. Uh, And uh, you have nuclear powers involved. And uh, um, you know, the, is Putin an irrational actor? Well, he seems to think that by rattling nuclear sabers, he's gonna get the West to divide that, uh, that uh, support for Ukraine and support for NATO. But we've been there before. This is what we dealt with in the early 80s. And uh, we survived because yeah, their, their strategy was rational. Uh, um, I, I met with a deputy foreign minister of the Soviet Union uh, just before we deployed the NATO missiles. This was in 1983 and it got reported that he had said that they could agree to a few cruise missiles in Great Britain. And he had said that. But what was missing in the report was what the actual conversation said. What he said to me was, Ron, we will never, ever, ever, ever acquiesce in the deployment of the INF missiles, the NATO missiles, until after you've deployed them. We are going to do everything we can to have the West pay the highest political price. But after you deployed them, who knows, maybe we could agree to something like a few cruise missiles in Great Britain. I find that interesting because in those days, and especially today, there was this sub-theme that came out of Moscow and their propaganda uh, professionals focused on Western Europe, was to make it all about the, quote, Anglo-Saxons. Because they're not only trying to divide the United States from its Atlantic allies, but to divide continental Europe from Great Britain. And when you ask about all of this, they think in terms of history. But it becomes puzzling sometimes. So when some of the more hawkish Russians would always make nuclear threats towards Sweden. This was a number of years ago, before Sweden applied for membership in NATO. I said, why, why, I mean, I can understand making nuclear threats against us and our NATO allies, but why the Swedes, they're neutral? And his answer was, well, we fought a dozen wars with the Swedes and they have tarnished our national legacy. I said, what did the Swedes do to tarnish tarnish your national legacy? Well, that was my first exposure to what is now known as anti-Normanism. One of the traditional uh, theories among uh, archaeologists and historians is that a lot of the early Eastern European civilizations that merged into what became Russia, and particularly the Kievan Rus, that these were populated heavily, particularly in the leadership positions, by people called the Rus, who were really Swedes, who came down the rivers and went all the way to Byzantium. Uh, in fact, one of the Byzantium uh, guards, the Varangian guards, uh, went back to become king of Norway. Uh, and uh, the first king of Norway, I believe. So I said well why does that tarnish? He said well it implies that we the Slavic peoples couldn't build our own country. Well of course we don't know who these people really were. They interbred. But the idea that Swedish influence somehow was important through the development of Russia causes offense among ultranationalists such that they've changed the textbooks to write the Swedes out. So um, a lot of interesting things going on in the world.
1: I think we're running out of time, so I've always saved the toughest question for last. So someone wants to know if we'll ever find a use for Livermorium.
2: <laughs> when, when did I say the universe would uh, uh, end? Um, I, I, have to, I have to say that um, I love mathematics. And theoretical mathematics is so incredibly abstract that ideas developed in mathematics 100, 200, 300 years ago that work as abstract math have only now been found to be of great value. And so whether any particular element will turn out to be of great value, I don't know. Uh, but if for those of you who are into uh, the periodic table and whether it has a future, there is this uh, theory that, that the next elements we discover that would build upon things like Livermorium would be in what's called an island of stability. And they might actually continue to exist for more than a fraction of a second.
1: Thank you. Very good.
0: You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today's program featured a talk by Ambassador Ronald Lehman, who recently spoke at the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations in Rockland. If you missed part of the program or want to listen again, you can also find it on our website, mainpublic.org. Click on radio to access this program and many other archived Speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from our alarm clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine, and Speaking in Maine is produced by me, Sam Tracy. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.